Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonic's aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to Sonic's Flight. This is episode number 20, Electrical Systems. This episode, we'll get into some of the thought process and considerations behind designing and implementing the electrical system on your Sonics project. We're going to talk with a well-respected and recognized expert in aircraft electrical system design, Bob Knuckles, and uh, try to tap into his uh, more than, oh, I don't know, Bob, what, 50 years of experience? Uh, Yeah, that's plus or minus a couple, yeah. All right. Well, um, I'm your host, Jeff Schultz, uh, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and 1374. And joining me again, as always, uh, my two good buddies, John Gillis and Gary Motley. John has several hundred hours behind his Jabiru-powered YX. John's best known for his custom modifications, like his uh, tilt-back canopy, his engine cowling, uh, his speed cowl, as we affectionately like to call it, and uh, his uh, his cool toe brakes, which, John... You're making quite the uh, quite the order book on those toe brakes. I've just got my, um, I think I've counted 42 is what I'm going to be up to when I finish this run. Wow. Well, Sets, not, not individual brakes. So in terms of percentage of Sonics flying out there, um, that's, a, that's a pretty good dent. You know, there's, what, 600 flying and you've got 42 in the fleet, so. Yeah, and those that fly with them love them. Yeah. Now you're making me feel bad. I'm gonna have to, you know, rethink my brake lever. Well, I'll have a I'll have a set for you at the uh, Mile High Flying. Okay, I'm not really gonna rethink my brake lever, but I just say that to make you feel good. Okay, good. <laughs> you can still put the toe brakes on; you just don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> and uh, joining us again, uh, Gary Motley. Uh, Gary is builder and pilot of Hound Dog. Is Aerobee-powered Tail Dragger Sonics. Gary's our high-altitude resident Sonics expert. He's a longtime pilot, former CFI, and uh, loves to fly cross-country. He has over 600 hours in his Sonics. Gary, you been flying any? Actually, I was. Last weekend, I ended up doing some mountain flight, and surprisingly, somehow, unbeknownst, ended up in Laramie, Wyoming. <laughs> so it was a good day. So how long does it take you to get to Laramie from, from Denver? Well, it depends if you're talking straight line or, or my circuitous route planning. Either. Well, if I do straight line, I can probably get there in an hour or so. Oh, okay. Uh, Come on, know, Gary. Just I'm, admit, you were out there, you lost track of where you were. Yeah. You finally had a punch into the GPS and say, closest airport, I'm running out of gas. I can tell you honestly, when I'm out there in the mountains and I'm flying the canyons and the valleys and the hilltops and yanking and banking, when I kind of get tired of that, I kind of expand my flight app out and kind of look around and see what I might be happen to be close to. And Laramie just kind of popped up and says, hmm, okay, I'll go to Laramie and try that again. And luckily it was within 30 minutes of your fuel exhaustion. Oh, no, I fly the Airbnb. I, I can fly for a half a day on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you probably landed at Laramie. It was like 8 in the morning, and you're like, I've, uh, I've already got 12 hours of flying, and I'm ready to go someplace now. I just did a stop and go. I didn't stop for fuel. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just stopped for a second and powered back up again and said, okay, that was fun. Yeah, you're not like us Jabberoo guys that are always just worried about running out of gas. No. Yes. Well, you I got guys. you beat. I, I, flew, I flew Saturday and Sunday, and uh, I flew a couple of 30-minute flights on Saturday and a couple of 30-minute flights on Sunday, and, uh, and I only had to stop for gas once, so how about that? You know, when you guys with the Jabberoos think about GPS, it doesn't have anything to do with navigation particularly. It calls with gas position sensor. You're looking for gas stations. Yeah, but just think of how much fresher our gas is because we're running it through the system a lot quicker. Right. <laughs> yep, bad gas kills, Gary. So, uh... <laughs> you guys, right. are... en- enough uh, with the enough with the yakking, you two. We got to get to some serious business here. So, Bob Knuckles, again, a recognized expert in electrical system design. Bob is best known for his work on the Aero Electric Connection. He publishes a book of Electrical system knowledge, advice, techniques, uh, sample electrical diagrams, and uh, and is also the the fixture on the uh, Metronics Aeroelectric email form. So, Bob, thanks for joining us, and look forward to running through the list of hot topics. Well, thanks for the invitation. I enjoy being here. I'm surprised you didn't sign up by now. <laughs> oh no! Just out of curiosity, what is the uh, practical cross country range on a Sonic set? We talking Arabic or Jabber? Oh well, let's have them both. <laughs> well, if you want to go 100 miles an hour, you can go a good four hours at 100 miles an hour. So that's 400 miles. I can get 500 miles if I stretch it. Yeah, but you're doing 60 miles an hour, Gary. <laughs> okay. Our Jabberoos—they uh, burn about uh, six to seven mi- uh, gallons per hour. And we're doing about 150 true airspeed. Okay. Three and a half gallons at 130 to 140 miles an hour true airspeed. I see. All right. I would say the average is three to maybe 350. That That's a good target range. 300 miles, 350 miles, and then looking for a fuel stop. Sure, sure. Or a bladder stop. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the important one. And some of us like to stop more often than others, so Gary is a diehard. He can go and go and go. But I understand John actually has a, a bladder relief tube in the bottom of his Sonex. Oh, I don't, I don't remove it. I just uh, collect it and then throw it out in the trash. You've got that girl-sized bladder. Well, yeah, but I have a fast airplane, so I can get there quick. <laughs> <laughs> He's got enough time to stop, fill the tank up, hit the bathroom, and still kick back on waiting for you to show up on the ramp and look cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, a um, couple of news items I want to just run down here real quick. Uh, first up, uh, I saw a few weeks ago the uh, the fourth customer Subsonics made its first flight. Did you guys see that? I did. What do you think of that paint job? I thought it was a super cool, you know, kind of a swoop going down the side. Really yeah. nice looking. Like cool. So I think what Mark told me was uh, there are um, there are seven that are under construction, uh, like seriously under construction. And this is the fourth customer to fly. There's the two Sonics factory prototypes, and uh, and they're working on their next their next production batch of them. So 
I mean, it's it's not a high volume product, but they're they're getting them out there. They're they're getting them done and flying them. So that's really cool. I support anything that's live. I don't care if it's ultra light or power parachutes or anything else. All right. Well, next up, uh, John was John Monnet was on the uh, EA's new podcast, uh, Green Dot, and uh, went on there and, and checked out the podcast. Pretty cool podcast. They, they seem to have a, a very lively list of topics, and it's interesting to listen to. Episode three, I think it was number three, the April nineteenth episode. He talked about his his early years and you know growing up and thinking about airplanes and and uh, his his career rebuilding airplanes and designing them. Just kind of a really good overview on where John came from, how it all led into the development of the Sonics, and a few things that are on his mind. Uh, he talked about Sonics branching out into some of their UAV work, which, coincidentally enough, uh, yesterday, Sonics announced they're releasing their Sonics Aerospace, which is their UAV sort of focused company, uh, their collaboration with Navmar. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And uh, just so we don't, uh, you know, paint uh, all roses picture here, um, Gary, I think you had commented that that uh, they're going to have to really deliver on this before I think the industry is ready to take them seriously as a as a major UAV player. Yeah, that's my little opinion. I always wish them luck. Well, Beach decided to get into UAV business once about oh, 30 years ago or 25 years ago, and we partnered up with uh, oh, McDonnell Douglas and, and uh, spent uh, I don't know, 10, 15 million dollars uh, deciding we didn't want to be in the UAV business. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, times are changing, and I think uh, you know, lower cost UAVs are getting a huge market share now. It's not oh, the super absolutely. high dollar ones. Yeah, I, I, I think the price will eventually go down, just like everything on electronics. And there's certainly a huge population who are attracted to those. And as you watch some of the other sites, like Aero News Network and that kind of thing, we're hoping that's going to trickle down into the active pilot population, you know, for full-size aircraft, which will be good for all of us. There was an interesting comment on the uh, the announcement with Sonics. Um, that these are the first UAVs that are all aluminum and not composite. So I don't really know how what kind of advantage that gives them. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Except <clears throat> you know, perhaps production cost. You know, I think it's still cheaper to, to produce an aluminum aircraft than it is a composite aircraft. Well, and you can probably repair it. You know, right now if you damage a composite, the end user typically doesn't have the skills to do it. So all they can do is box it up and send it back to the manufacturer. So there might well, be you and the, four repair options. Jeff, in your, in your military mind, you've, you've played with UAVs. Um, when you crash them in the field, you really can't repair them, can you? Nope. All we can do is sort of tighten bolts and maybe replace parts. But for anything significant on the engines or the airframes or any of that stuff, all we do is send it back to the manufacturer. And they've got a very lucrative, fat maintenance contract, and they're more than happy to do whatever we want. But it costs us big bucks. You know, for the price of, of one small tactical UAV that, that an Army unit might use, uh, you could fly a couple of subsonics uh, and, and have way more capability. So I think that there is the potential to take that airframe and, uh, and turn it into something that would be highly attractive to a bunch of users. They also said that uh, the dual or the twin subsonics 
can be rail launched off of a truck. Yeah, and that's important for like the army, where you, you may be flying off sites that are really not improved, and uh, you need that that rough field capability. Or if you're on a on a ship, you know, you don't have the deck space to to really launch it. I think it'd be spectacular just to watch one. Yeah. Well, the other thing which is really cool is, uh, you know, people have been clamoring for more subsonics. You know, uh, stretch it, put a second seat in it, maybe a second engine. So it looks like maybe they're thinking about ways to adapt the existing airframe into new missions. So, I don't know. Maybe we'll see a two-place twin jet. All right. Well, why don't we jump right into the main topic here? So before we get into our list of of advice that we wish we would have known when we were building our planes, Bob, why don't you start by giving us a, a bit of your background Tell us about kind of how you grew up in the electronics industry and aviation, and and then uh, maybe some interesting projects you worked on, and we'll go from there. Oh, golly, how many hours you got? <laughs> well, shoot for the uh, shoot for the thirty second version, and we'll try to keep it under about five minutes. I understand. Well, I I'm uh, right at my desk right now. I'm looking at uh, copies of uh, two books that got me started in electronics when I was in about the fourth grade. I had an uncle give me uh, a copy of the Audell's Radio Man's Handbook and another thing that was a, a Gernsback publication called Radio for the Millions. And another ham radio operator gave me an amateur radio handbook. And uh, I don't know, I'd, I'd rather pour through those books than, uh, than watch TV. In fact, I think I got those books before we even had a TV. So my electronics career started uh, 1952 or thereabouts, and it hasn't stopped since. I was extremely fortunate, though, that uh, I grew up in Wichita. In Wichita, at the time I was becoming an employable individual out of high school, the attitudes for the aviation companies was still very much... uh, hip pocket management styles of uh, Dwayne Wallace and, and Walter Beach and, and the guys that started those uh, now famous companies that are, that are just mere ghosts of what they used to be. And uh, those guys, if, if you walked in the door and said, I, I can do some good things for you, they'll say, what can you do for me? And you tell them, they say, okay, you go over and ride the shirt tails of that guy over there and let's see what happens. And uh, uh, it was I was only employed at, uh, in the aviation industry as a technician for maybe three or four years before I uh, got a job over in engineering. And I started getting an engineering badge and, uh, for the jobs I was doing. And I was doing design work and, and learning my, uh, my trade on the job. And um, I wound up bailing out of college uh, in second semester calculus because they talked me off about the about how much stuff I had to learn to get the degree that wasn't applicable to what I was doing already in my job. And so I was able to uh, acquire my engineering and analysis skills literally from the people who knew how to do it. I got on the job training from some of the best. And uh, and it's sort of interesting now that if I go back to, uh, if, uh, if I'd go back and try to do some contracting work at uh, Textron, who is now Beach, uh, Hawker, and Cessna, everybody rolled into one, uh, I could not wear an engineering badge because I don't have a degree, but they would hire me as a, uh, what do they call it, technical services specialist, 
And incidentally, the pay scale for those guys is about three times that of the engineers. So you don't want the badge, I guess. So it's uh, it's been an interesting career. I've worked for uh, all of the aviation companies at least uh, twice, uh, or at least once, uh, some of them twice. I've been a supplier of products to all of them. And uh, and I had little stints uh, out of aviation to go work in television for a while, and I worked in burglar alarms, and, and I worked for a company out in Pennsylvania on uh, um, nuclear instrumentation systems, and I was working for Hughes Aircraft on guided missiles in Tucson for a while. So uh, I love electronics. It's the only business in the world that gets into everybody else's business. So, and, Bob, when uh, you say you worked for the aviation companies, what did you do for them? Uh, well, my first actual job in aviation was, would be at Boeing. I got out of high school and took a test uh, over in the employment office, and a guy comes out grinning ear to ear and says, Son, show up here uh, 8 o'clock Monday morning, your electronic technician grade D for 86 bucks a week. And uh, I got to go to all the uh, uh, schools on the on the systems on the B-52 at the time, so I got to go to bomb nav school and ECM and Astro Compass and, and uh, uh, really got to take advantage of a lot of their educational opportunities. Uh, I left Boeing and went to work at, uh, uh, let's say, I think it was up in Chicago. I was teaching electronics at Great Lakes Naval Training Base up there for a while and came back to Wichita and went to work at Cessna as a tech writer and... Uh, that's where that's what really was started kind of the roots of the air electric connection. I learned how to put together and publish a book because I published a lot of books there. But I had to do the writing, I had to do the artwork, I had to take the stuff into the photo lab and get it photographed, and to come back and opaque the negatives, and then take the negatives down to the printers. And so I got end-to-end uh, -end experience on what it took to to publish a book. So and, since you mentioned that book, um, for, for those who are not familiar with it, uh, just tell us what is that book and what is it used for? Well, it, it has its genesis in my uh, uh, first trip to Oshkosh. I was working for B&C. Uh, any of you that are familiar with B&C's products, uh, uh, they have a little SD8 alternator that drives off the vacuum pump pad. It's about an 8-amp machine. And Bill Bainbridge walked into B&C one day about, oh, golly, I'm going to guess 19... 80 somewhere in there and uh, and he wanted to buy uh, the front end bell off of a standby generator we were doing for Beach because that end bell was already cast and then machined to fit the drive pad on the back of an engine and he would take that casting then and modify it to fit his little permanent magnet alternator and so I talked to him for a little bit and uh, went back and asked the boss who was Fred Coslett that ran the company and again it was a kind of a mom and pop operation we would never never pull off a stunt like this at Boeing and I says Fred can I can I sell this guy some castings and I uh, told him what he was doing with him he says well just don't run our inventory low so uh, I had a, a kind of a direct involvement in launching BNC's little standby alternator project, and that was his first one out of the bag. And uh, shortly after that, I started working with him on improving the electronics for that uh, alternator, and we re rewound it to get better efficiency. And I think in 1986, he invited me to go to uh, Oshkosh and help him uh, market the products. And that's when I really got immersed in uh, amateur build aviation. And you walk out on the field, and it was just covered with white plastic airplanes. That was the 
the, uh, the very easy and the long easies were king back then. But the quality of the electrical system in those airplanes showed that the electrical system was the least understood system in the airplane. You had beautiful airplanes for uh, st structures and paint and finishes and rivet jobs and you know everything that was done by hand was was actually superb. But then you'd see electrical systems that had a lot of zip cord for wire and terminals mashed on with pairs of pliers and. Uh, odds assortments of switches and breakers and so forth and I said well I can I can help these guys out and it was on the way home that year I started outlining uh, the first few chapters of my book and so that's that's been almost 30 years ago now that the Aero Electric Connection was born and it's been edited uh, 12 times it's in the 12th edition I'm going to do one more and then I'm going to quit and uh, and it'll be the 13th and we're going to get it updated to get the lithium batteries in it and the new PM alternators and all that stuff but uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I've sold, oh, I don't know, probably 20,000 copies over the years. And uh, got to check in one time on my uh, postage expenses. I have mailed approximately 12 tons of books. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have one of those copies, and I, I think I mentioned earlier, my, mine is at least 15 years old, maybe, maybe more, mae 20 years old. And uh, it, it really kind of affected my thinking. And... Uh, kind of helped me outline what I wanted to do in, in my electrical system. And so I think that probably more than any other single reference, you know, you've, you've really had an impact on builders. Well, it, I tried to, and, and it's, it kind of stemmed out of my, uh, or was based on my earliest uh, experiences with uh, electronics education. I'd taught electronics at uh, Wichita University. I taught for the, uh, uh, the Navy and uh, it, it really kind of cemented the idea that if you haven't got a good grasp on how things work, then it's your, your chances of assembling those bits and pieces into a, uh, an elegant solution for a system are, are seriously degraded. It's like well, cooking, for example. You can have a whole kitchen full of spices and ingredients and so forth, and you got a recipe... And if you follow the recipe very, very closely, you might come out pretty close to what was intended. But there's processes involved as well. So uh, having a good grasp on the, on the ingredients that go into your recipe for success was important. So that's why if you read my book, each chapter I start talking about the history of the processes and materials in that chapter. And uh, most people don't think of crimping a terminal on about trying to get a not only a good mechanical joint but it has to be gas tight well what's that mean well you got to keep the moisture out of it or the darn thing's going to corrode and fall off of there oh okay <laughs> right and understanding some of the why makes some of the the hows start to make more sense exactly exactly yeah. and uh well so when we start talking about philosophy um i guess that's the first question i wanted to ask is where do builders start when they when they sit down to start thinking about and designing their electrical system? Where where do you start? Where how do you start tackling this monumental task? Well, uh, probably the first place is start to read, and and again, whether it's my book or anybody else's book, understand the ingredients that go into your recipe for success. But the other thing is to look around and see what kinds of things people are already flying. Uh, I get an awful lot of emails from guys that are out there reinventing the wheel, 
And uh, in fact, it was those kinds of calls that started the, the appendix in the back of my book, which I call the Z figures. It's Appendix Z. In, in the back are approximately 30 figures back there that say, here are, <clears throat> here are baselines, here are recommended architectures, depending upon what kind of airplane you're building. Uh, whether it's something as simple as a Sonics or an Ultralight or maybe a Lancer 4P with all the bells and whistles. It's all uh, baselined in the back of that book. And then I say, take one of those diagrams and tell me how that any one of those diagrams does not meet your mission goals. Uh, conceivably, a guy could have a Lancer 4 that he wants to just uh, be able to bore fast holes in the sky. He could outfit it like a like a Piper Cherokee, and, uh, and and fly contact flight and fly with just a GPS, or maybe he's going to put all the bells and whistles in it. And that, those are two entirely different mission statements and two uh, very different electrical systems. So you have to decide how you're going to use the airplane. Yeah, that's the first thing. Well, I'm sorry, Bob. Yeah, the, that's, that's the first right. thing that comes to my mind is uh, – Think about your mission. If you don't have a goal, if you don't have a defined mission in mind, you're going to wander off in all kinds of conflicting areas, and it's never really going to come together until you know what you want the airplane to do. Absolutely. And uh, fortunately with the Sonics, you're, you're somewhat limited in terms of ranges of mission, but you guys just told me, well, golly, you can get 400 miles of range out of this thing on a three-hour flight. That's serious cross-country transportation. Yeah, uh, it can be. Yeah, it can be. And, and yeah. well, are there any two-place Sonics? There's a this, this <laughs> single-place airplanes. Well, it, it depends on what engine you're flying, obviously, Bob. <laughs> you know, okay. I fly Airby, and unfortunately, my altitude, which is base altitude is 6,000 feet, just for my, yeah. uh, my, my tarmac. Yeah. I have to consider my Airby as a single-place airplane. <laughs> That being said, though, there are a lot of guys that fly close to the sea level that do easily and frequently stuff two people in there, so it kind of depends. Okay. As as, as a first-time flyer, or a first-time daughter, I should say, many of us, we we think we know what our mission is, but unfortunately, we really don't know until after we get into it. Yeah. kind of evolve and change. As I keep frequently telling most people I meet, especially my patients, there's no such thing. Uh, or I should say the only constant thing in the universe is change. Right. Our mission changes as, as things go along, and we have to try to adapt or, or perhaps move on to a different project. Well, then Jeff was explaining to me that it's really easy to get at everything in the airplane with removing uh, minimal amounts of, of cover and hardware. So, uh, boy, if you want to do some major changes in the airplane, it wouldn't be terribly difficult. But... Uh, yeah, if, if uh, I, I think the, the biggest pitfall that people get into is they, they, they'll gather a bunch of schematics and diagrams and they kind of say, well, I like this about it, that diagram, and I like this over here, and they start to craft their own. And, uh, and that's a good thought process. It's a good exercise. But while they're doing that, they have to kind of have the built-in idea of, of failure mode effects analysis and we'll, we'll probably talk about that a little later, but also uh, tailoring the thing to the mission. And if it's their first airplane or even second or third airplane, they may not have a good handle on that. So 
the best thing to do is look at something that's already flying or get something out of the Z figures and say, all right, let's start with this and decide how that does not meet a mission goal. Because picking one of those figures, you may be 100% of the way there, but you're certainly going to be 95 or 90 or 92% of the way there. And making minor changes to something that already exists is a lot safer. And, and uh, Forgive me, I, I hate to use the word safe because airplanes are not safe. They're dangerous as hell. But it's certainly a lot more reliable and a lot more predictable if you start with something that's, uh, that's already proven. And well, Bob, I will say I, uh, I had my own plan on doing my electrical system on my Sonics. I bought your book. I opened the section to the Jabiru um, schematics that you had, yeah. and pretty soon my design pretty much mirrored yours almost identically. There you go. There you go. Uh, I, one of my most startling uh, uh, confessions from a, from a reader was I did a seminar. I think it was out in, uh, in California. Oh, this has been 15 years ago. He was working on a long easy, and uh, when everybody introduced themselves at the beginning of the seminar, he says, well, I've got this long easy, and I'm, I'm mostly done with the wiring, but I, I thought I'd take this course and, and uh, see what kind of uh, trim I could do to the system to make it better. And uh, uh, oh, it was probably two or three months later, I get an email from me. He says, I took your course, I went home, and I ripped everything out of the airplane and started over. <laughs> but, he says, I learned so much in terms of putting it in the first time about the processes that when it came time to apply your uh, ideas for architecture, uh, the stuff that I'd spent months putting in went back in in two weeks. So the processes was the big holdup, and once he had a good roadmap, he said it was easy to do. So that was one of my most satisfying uh, returns on investment, I think, for, for helping the builder approach his project with a lot more confidence. And that's a whole separate topic as well. Uh, don't be afraid to go back and rework things to get it right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the learning curve on this stuff is very steep. I mean, uh, in fact, I've, uh, I'm have i still doing it out. I've got a woodworking mechanical shop out behind my house here, and I just did a bathroom remodel project where a couple of the pieces I made for that thing, I was on the third one before I was satisfied with it. But the third one went together in 20 minutes, and the first two I uh, fiddled around with for hours. So it's... <laughs> Education is not cheap. It's not fast, and it's not cheap. It's tough. Well, Bob, in, in terms of broad goals that builders ought to kind of keep in mind when they're working up the, the, the conceptual architecture for their, their electrical system, what, what do you think those broad sort of goals that they want to keep in mind should be? Well, I think the, the, one of the biggest reasons people have voiced a, uh, incentive to, to take my courses or read the books is that they worry a lot about reliability. And certainly in aviation, I mean, if you look at the general public impression of aviation, you think, God, you get in that little airplane and you fly around all by yourself and hey, isn't that dangerous and, and are, are you crazy or something? Because I saw this thing on TV and then, then you... You see these failures that happen in the air, and they make good drama for Hollywood. 
but some of them are almost comically stupid, and others are so badly uh, scripted that, you know, when I'm sitting in the audience and I sit there and I'm doing these failure mode effects analysis and these, these things on this accident that's going on in the screen in front of me, I say, you know, somebody, <laughs> whoever designed that airplane ought to be shot. And uh, and so that's the public impression. And what I try to get people to, to start out with is the notion that electrical systems figure in a very, very tiny percentage of bad accidents with airplanes. In other words, the vast majority of airplanes still flying today can have a panel go completely dark and it does not fall out of the sky. And it's possible to build a home-built airplane that way. You can buy P-mags, you can buy uh, electronic mags that are uh, electronic ignitions that take very little energy. Uh, there is no reason for a gross electrical failure to become a really gut-wrenching emergency. Uh, once you get past that, you say, all right, let's, let's take one of the Z figures and let's start looking at how it matches our mission. Are you going to fly at night? Well, yeah, well, you got to have some lights. You're going to go cross-country and above 700 feet? Yeah, you got to have a transponder. So now you're starting to add requirements in for energy. And for endurance, and that starts to size an alternator and size a battery, and uh, and you have to keep a continuous thought process in mind that every part you put in the airplane has a potential for failure, and most of those failures will not be because it's a bad part, or even because it's worn out, it'll be because it was installed wrong, or not maintained right. So... If you if you kind of do a search of the uh, oh, what they call them service difficulty reports for certified airplanes, I've I've spent hours looking through those things, looking for uh, uh, incidences that had electrical system roots, and they are very very rare. Yet popular uh, aviation journals, uh, Flying Magazine, and Pilot, and all those they'll they'll like to have what I call the dark and stormy night stories. And I, I feature several of those on my website. I plagiarize the thing, and then I analyze the story. And I say, what was it this pilot did not understand? What was it his mechanic didn't understand about how this airplane worked that got him into this situation in the first place? Well, Rob, and, uh, let's, let's see if we can start boring down to some of the specifics. Okay. Um, I don't know if you'd like to start with any in particular. Um, what if we just start with something very simple, Jeff, unless you've got some better idea. Let's talk about crimping versus soldering wire terminals. Okay. Uh, there is, in terms of reliability and performance, there is no difference between those two techniques. One of them takes a little more skill, and it's a little more hazardous. We quit soldering things in the Cessnas about 1962 or or 61, because the uh, guys that drop soldering irons on the carpets in the airplanes and or the upholstery, or they get themselves burned. Uh, obviously, the crimped terminals are a little more expensive, and they go on with a high-dollar tool, but either joint is just as reliable. In other words, there's, if, if somebody wants to take the time to learn how to solder and, and do good solder work, uh, that's fine. Okay, that's I heard anecdotally that perhaps the soldering was actually more brittle than the crimp terminal. It was more what? 
more brittle than a crimp. Brittle, yeah. There's there's a, a kind of a oh, it's a notion that when you take a a stranded wire, a stranded wire is flexible because it is stranded, and it's hard to break because it's stranded. Uh, consider a uh, and, and the reason for this is the the fine stranding of the copper. Uh, and a good uh, corollary to that is consider fiberglass. That glass that's in the uh, fiberglass insulation in your house is exactly the same glass as you'd make a quarter-inch diameter glass rod out of. But the difference is the fiberglass is such a very, very fine strand that when you bend it, the stresses on the outside of the bend don't stretch very far, and the stresses on the inside don't compress very far, and they don't stress it past failure. And the same thing happens with copper. Well, let's so make sure I understand exactly what we're speaking the same thing. What about uh, what about tinning a, a wire before you crimp it? Is that a good practice? Yeah. Well, you don't have to. If the if the tool is properly crimping a terminal, uh, there are pictures on my website that show this. I've I've crimped terminals on, and I cut them cross section. I look at them under a microscope. You cannot see any differentiation between terminal metal and wire metal. It is all mashed together into one amorphous shape, meaning that, first of all, there's they become one piece of metal, and there's no way for moisture to get in there, so it's gas tight. So either one is perfectly fine as far it, as you could You could tin it, but it isn't going to make any difference because when you mash that terminal down, it squishes that copper like peanut butter. Well, that's good enough, because I had, I had originally started tinning some wires first, you know, that perhaps it was more brittle, and I kind of stopped doing it. No, it doesn't hurt a thing. The, the, the issue is that when the people used to worry about soldering things on, because you've taken those strands, which are real flexible, you fill them full of solder when you attach them to the terminal, so now there's a point where the strands change from stranded into a solid material, and right there, if that vibrates, you get a stress risers there, and it breaks off right there. They say, oh, oh, that's bad. Solder, you know, you don't want to solder those things. You want to crimp them. Well, look at a, when you crimp the, the strands together, they become solid, just as if you'd soldered them. And every good crimp terminal has a sleeve that extends out past the crimp joint and grabs the insulation for vibration support. And so it's the the fact that you've got a double crimp on a terminal that keeps it from breaking off just like a soldered joint would break off. So you put some heat shrink over your soldered joint, and it's just as good as a crimp joint. There's no more probability of it breaking off in your airplane than if it were crimped. So what are the tips for, for connectors that, um, you know, your your best tips for successful connectors, what would those be? Well, oftentimes those are specified by whoever, uh, I mean, if you're putting in a black box, you know, they're going to have connectors in their kit, and they may send you crimp connectors. Hopefully they will. Uh, there's very inexpensive crimp tools out there to put on the D-sub and, and, uh, and Molex and Amp Mate and Lock type pins. But uh, if, if people want to wanna learn how to solder, there's some excellent uh, connectors on eBay right now. I forget what the brand name is on them. I've got one laying on my desk here. I ordered it in just to get a look at it. And it's almost a clone 
of the World War II MS-3100 series connectors with solder pots in the back of them. Yeah, you got to solder them together. But they've got the nice bayonet lock and gasket sealed uh, housings on them. So it's kind of a mixture of modern and ancient components. And they're dirt cheap. And they're excellent connectors, but you're going to have to solder it. So it's, uh, I don't think there's any bad connector choices out there particularly. All right, Jeff, what's the next one you're stating? Okay, so uh, Bob, urban legends. Um, I want to just uh, give a chance to dispel any urban legends that are floating around there for connectors. Anything else come to mind that you want to dispel? Uh, well, maybe one about uh, wire insulation. Uh, people worry about uh, using PVC wire, automotive wire in their airplane. They're worried about uh, uh, the smoke that it gives off and the fumes being poisonous and all those kinds of things. Uh, let me tell you, every insulation on every kind of wire you can put your hands on, if you burn that wire, the smoke is not pleasant. And it doesn't matter whether it's PVC, Tefzel, Kynar, whatever. If you burn a wire, uh, whatever comes out of that wire into your cockpit is going to be exceedingly unpleasant. And so the the notion is keep it from burning in the first place, and that's what fuses and breakers do for you. And or get on the ground quickly. Well... Uh, first of all, you got to be able to shut off your electrical system immediately. In other words, make the airplane dead cold and still fly the airplane. So that's one of your your first failure mode considerations is, if I shut off all the switches on the panel, can I still put this airplane on the ground with power on? And then design to be able to do that. Well, unfortunately, with some of the new engine options, they are explicitly requiring electrical power in order to operate. Well, that's exactly right. A little bit of a problem for us. And that's why I have builders take those items on the, the, the for an electrically dependent engine, run those items from what we call a battery bus. In other words, put fuses in a fuse block right at the battery, run the engine essential goodies from those fuses, give them their own power switches on the panel, and do not make them any part of your DC power distribution system. So that means you can still make the airplane max cold, shut everything off, and the engine still runs. Well, and I think it's also important to have your audio system continue to play Danger Zone from uh, <laughs> from Top Gun when that happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do want my Sirius XM radio to continue to play, Bob. Well, I, I use uh, battery-powered MP3 players for that, so that's... <clears throat> That's one of my totally independent... Uh, Still kind of in the Neanderthal age. <laughs> well, uh, I, one of the slides I bring up on my weekend seminar, I say, uh, in terms of doing your failure mode effects analysis, uh, what is your plan B for the worst case situ- scenario? Well, the worst case is that the electrical system needs to be shut down. Probably not because it has has actually failed and shut down by itself, but because you had smoke in a cockpit or something's going on, it says, I, I need to turn it off. And if that's the case, uh, I have handheld GPS, I've got a handheld little navcom, and I've got a flashlight. And for all of the missions that I have flown, which include long-distance cross-country over mountains, if I have to go to a dark cockpit, I can still get to where I want to go using the hardware in my flight bag. 
that that to me is the ultimate elegant design. Say, so I've got a, a system architecture here that gives me a high probability of of getting to where I want to go, not making an emergency landing or looking for an airport that's, uh, I mean, I don't know, between Dalhart and Santa Fe, I don't think there's a single doggone airport. <laughs> it's pretty darn sparse out there. So yeah, I have flown that route, and I think you're right. Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, what's the little town there just west of the mountain range, or east of the mountain range before you get to Santa Fe? I, but, yeah, it's it's really sparse. Uh, Las Vegas. Las yeah. Vegas, New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. So my personal goal is I, I say I want to design an electrical system that has a, an endurance that exceeds my fuel endurance. In other words, the only reason I've got to come down is because the engine is going to quit. And so I'm going to design for everything else to be uh, expendable, replaceable, or you know have a plan B for, for loss of that piece of equipment. I have a question for you, Bob. Sure. What about the, the difference between the fast-on, push-on connectors versus the screws? What's your preference on those? Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to have to dig back one of these days and do a little narrative that was probably, I don't know, it may be, go clear back to CompuServe days, but uh, <clears throat> we got into a conversation about fast-on uh, terminals. And, uh, oh, I think, yeah, it was some guy on, uh, on one of my forums or one of the forums that says, oh, man, I'm, a, I'm an FAA super-duper AI or inspector of some kind. He says, if I saw one of those in an airplane, I'd ground the thing. He says, I wouldn't let them get off the ground with that, that terminal in the airplane. I'm sitting there kind of dumbfounded. And this was probably in 1990 or somewhere in there. And I says, sir, are you aware of the fact that all of the rocker switches on the backs of single-engine Cessnas have been fast on terminals since 1960. And there was this dead silence. He was absolutely not aware of that. And so I said, well, let's sit down and talk about the physics of making that, that connection and, and uh, using the fast on terminal. And, and there's an article on my website that explores the physics of how the fast on terminal works. And most people think that it's that large flat area of the terminal setting against the backside of the spade that makes the electrical connection. I said, no, it's where it curls around and comes down to give you the spring pressure to push it on. If you push a fast on terminal onto a spade and then pull it off, if you look at where those two little fold-over wings came over, you'll see bright metal where the metal was actually upset as you pushed the terminal on and then pulled it back off. I say that is a very high-pressure, low-area joint is where the gas tightness occurs and gives you electrical integrity. And the neat thing about it is if that vibrates a little bit, that, that's really good for that kind of terminal because it makes those little little knife edges just dig in deeper into that spade. But if you look at a, a screw terminal, if that screw backs off a sixteenth of a turn, you've lost the joint. In other words, uh, uh, they, that thing depends on a gas-tight connection between the flag of the terminal and the, and the, the post on the switch or the breaker, and that pressure comes from the rotation of a threaded fastener. And that's not nearly as reliable under vibration as those fast-on spades. 
I hope I'm not hijacking you, Jeff, but I would kind of like to go on to the, the big culprit that we all seem to worry about is mysterious ground technique. <laughs> are, we, are we kind of done with the terminals? I'll, I'll have to keep referring, in, in fact, uh, also in any of the publications you guys happen to produce or contribute to, anything you find on my website is available for distribution, you know, to whoever. You don't, you don't have to write to me for permission or anything like that. And there are articles on there that discuss uh, the fast on terminals and gas type connections and so forth in, in quite a bit of detail. Uh, grounding is, a, is an interesting topic, and I've written quite a bit about that. And it usually rears its ugly head in noises in the headphones or in your transmitted audio. Uh, and occasionally in misbehaviors of an instrument on the engine. But again, on your airplanes, boy, you got a beautiful opportunity to do what's called the single point ground. And that's just, uh, uh, that could be like a, a product that I designed for BNC 25 years ago. It's called the Forest of Tabs uh, ground block. And that's right on the firewall. And say, so, all right, take everything it grounds in this airplane, all the power grounds for the avionics and everything, down to that single point. And you're not going to have any noises in your in your instrumentation system. Well, I like now, I think a couple questions about that, that process or that thought process about a single point. Now, as, as I've seen some of your things, I've seen that forest of tabs. <clears throat> and are you still isolating that separate from the, from the firewall, for example? Oh, no. no, no. That's fastened right to the firewall. That, that's where everything gets attached to the airplane as well. So I understand there's several different techniques of, of, of doing these things, one of which is what you're mentioning, one of which is, is doing the ground to the firewall, including the firewall, which, of course, incorporates the entire airframe. Right. Uh, well, what about possibly just going straight to the source, which means, in other words, going straight to the battery? So basically every item needs a, a positive and a negative for ground return, wiring everything basically directly to the battery for power and ground and negating the firewall and airframe. Well, in the ground system, that's essentially what force to tabs does because there's a, a wire that comes from the minus post on the battery that goes right to that bolt. What about with firewalls, though, and, and incorporating the ground and the airframe itself? You know, many aircraft, certified aircraft, even have static wicks on them on the ailerons and everything else worrying about you know, static electricity charges and trying to get all this stuff grounded and muted out. If we go straight to the battery post, basically, for power and ground, would that necessarily negate all of those problems? Well, first of all, the static wicks are an entirely separate activity in terms of getting a ground. And also, antennas are an entirely separate activity in terms of getting a ground. And so... I've, I've had uh, builders tell me of a situation where they'd say, well, I got a composite airplane, and I was getting a lot of noise, uh, um, uh, precept noise in flight, and, uh, and they'd say, well, I run a ground wire from, or, or bonded across all of my aileron hinges or something like that. I mean, you'd get all kinds of stories out there about, uh, about running extra wires around the airplane to ground stuff on a plastic airplane. And by and large, those are not successful. They are attacking a, a different problem with a wrong technique. Uh, 
first of all, if you got P-static on a plastic airplane, you got a handful of problems. And just talk to glass air builders and, and uh, lance air builders. And, uh, and, and I don't know what they ultimately ended up with as being the ultimate control of P-static on those airplanes. But, uh, no, I, uh, I see people wanting to run everything to the minus terminal of the battery. I, says, I, that, I don't know where those ideas come from. The, 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 the noises get into a system because a system that is a potential victim, and what I, what I mean by a victim is something that has very small signals, like microphone signals, headphone signals, uh, maybe some data that's being uh, transferred from one black box to another on the panel. Uh, those very small signals can be contaminated by noise that get injected into that system from outside. Well, how does that happen? <clears throat> if you have an all-metal airplane and the airplane uses, or the, the battery is grounded back in the tail and the alternator is grounded up front at the firewall, then there are substantial currents that flow on the airframe itself. And that's just fine. We do it, um, you know, the, uh, all of the beach products ground things all over the airplane. But one of the things they don't do is ground a potential victim at any place other than the central point ground. In other words, very close to the, to the uh, uh, black box that uses that signal. So I figured that one of the easiest ways to get around that, that problem of deciding was to come up with the ground system diagrams I did in figure Z15, I think it is, in the back of the book. And I suggest uh, an avionics ground, which is actually on the panel, right up there with the radios. And you take everything, uh, headphone grounds, uh, mic grounds, uh, mic shields, all the stuff that ultimately comes together at that single point. Then you take a wire and run down to the, of course, on your all-metal airplane, you probably wouldn't have to. You just, you just uh, ground that right at the, at the panel. On a plastic airplane, you take a ground down to the, to the firewall ground. And, uh, and as long as your, your radio transmitter doesn't share a ground path with a landing light or the strobes or something like that, the noises from all of those really ugly things that are scattered around the airplane is not going to get into the radios. So it, it's really a pretty simple process. And if you, if you just start with the idea of building this star, this distribution for single point ground, uh, uh, those problems just never crop up. Well, something and, else you have to too is whether we're going to use the term star grounding system, which is what you're alluding to, as I understand it. Yeah. So, if, if for example, we were to take a, a, a couple of different buses instead of having everything all on one bus, let's say, for example, we have our avionics on one bus, and such as such as our, our motors, flaps, lights on a separate bus run those grounds, we can still run them to the same focal point on the firewall, for example, as our central focus ground, and then run that firewall to our battery negative. Is that what you're suggesting? Exactly. The grounds have nothing to do with your bus structures. In other words, you can have as many power distribution buses that, that have controls and, and power management as you would like, and uh, it doesn't change how you handle the grounds. So as long as you tie everything back into that central star point, whether it's attached through a, a pass-through bolt on the, the firewall bulkhead, 
as long as everything is going to there and then from there as a single cable back to the negative of the battery, that should be good. Yeah. Now, the thing about it, in your airplanes, though, the, the kinds of antagonists that were classically getting into uh, avionics would be the old uh, uh, xenon strobes, for example. You'd hear the whine of the power supply and hear the strobes firing. You might have a landing gear motor. You might have a, a fan motor. You might have uh, uh, alternator noise that crops up when you uh, uh, bring the alternator on. You've got alternator charge currents going back through the fuselage to a rear-mounted battery. In other words, there are a potential for some really antagonistic noise sources. Those don't exist on your airplanes. So, uh, I, I, you, I, if anybody's got a, a noise problem in a Sonics, he had to work real hard to get it. <laughs> I'd be interested in, in uh, talking with somebody that's experienced that and see what the source was. You can accomplish anything you might, you might envision. <laughs> Well, Bob, let's talk about a few other um, sort of best practice topic areas. Um, sure. A couple of things that are on my mind. Uh, you spend some time in the book talking about wire sizes. And, yes. Uh, and, and just to paraphrase, and correct me if you, if you think I'm misinterpreting it, you can go through a, a fairly sophisticated analysis to come up with an ideal wire size and yeah. then kind of group them in, you know, so it can get by with a, with a 24 gauge for this and a 22 for that, but maybe you just kind of bundle them into, you buy a whole bunch of 22 and call it good. And you buy maybe a whole bunch of 18 and you skip doing 24 and 20 altogether. So oh, what's sure. your philosophy on, you know, for an average home builder, uh, just just on wire in general, how do you recommend you, you, you kind of select your wire and run your wires? Well, uh, first of all, if you've got a, a black box that you're hooking up, any kind of a product out there, usually the instruction manual will come with a recommended wire size. And uh, you can't go wrong by picking that wire size to, to wire the thing up. There are two considerations for uh, picking the size of a wire. One is how hot is this wire going to get and does it put the insulation at risk? Uh, and, and it's the insulation that limits the current reading of a piece of wire. It's not the, the wire melting. Uh, I think there's a little sample on my website that shows a 22 gauge wire on my workbench. It's, it's got a load on it of 20 amps. And I've got a little thermocouple right on the side of the wire and I forget what it gets up to. It's like about 120 C, and the wire is rated for 150 C. So we could say, all right, by that example, I've got a 22-gauge wire that's being loaded at four times the recommended current for use in an airplane, yet its temperature rise has not exceeded the limits for its insulation. Well, some of that requires reference back to the length of one as well exactly then you start getting into a voltage drop situation as a general rule of thumb we say well if we're going to install stuff on an airplane uh we're going to start with a 14.2 volt bus i don't want to toss off more than five percent of that voltage in getting the energy out to the product and back to ground so if you're working on something like a sonics 
the wire lengths, I mean, you couldn't put enough wire length in there to be a, a, a really big issue if you're working on a beach jet or a Hawker 4000. Yeah, there's some situations where we were all running five amps back to the tail, but ended up with an 18-gauge wire in there to make sure that the that we had less than a 5% voltage drop. But you're, you're not going to see that kind of situation in a little home built for the, for the most part. So uh, selecting wire size, uh, golly, you could spend a lot of time fussing around wire. You could buy, if you can find a good deal on some 20-gauge Tefzel off of eBay, buy the spool up, and, and you could probably wire 95% of your airplane out of that one spool of wire, and it'll be just fine. Okay, what types of things are going to need the fatter wires? Uh, basically, the alternator and uh, starter battery, any of your battery uh, uh, path connections. And I don't know, has anybody done any uh, uh, current draw measurements on, uh, on the starters on your airplanes? I haven't. Okay. That'd be some interesting data to get. I'm, I'm toying around. I've got a, uh, one of the guys on my forums doing software for me. And we're thinking about building up a little portable data acquisition system that I can mail out to somebody and say, hey, hook this on your airplane like this and so, and punch the green button and go in and do these things and then come out and punch the red button and then mail me the box back. <laughs> and so I can, by, by kind of remote uh, first-class mail, I can get data off of airplanes in the field. You're, you're our engineer, Bob. Huh? You're, you're our kind of engineer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, one of my heroes is uh, Lord Kelvin, who said, unless you can talk about something in terms of its numbers, then you have scarcely scratched the surface of the science. And there's just an awful lot of discussion goes on in home-built airplanes where people can get real excited about big things or trivial things without really being able to put a number on them and uh and that that's that's my major goal is to let's let's go measure let's find out what's really happening yeah absolutely i'm i'm with you yeah i've still got lots of questions for you <laughs> okay what's the next oh well, while we're on wire uh very quickly uh Insulation is, uh, you know, getting Tefzel or something for, for fireproofing is, or smoke reasons is, is silly. Uh, in fact, uh, for the fat wires, for battery wires and, and uh, starter wires, uh, consider using welding cable uh, from a weld shop. Uh, you guys could probably do very nicely with six gauge, I think is the smallest welding cable you can buy. And it's, it's cat hair copper. I mean, it's so flexible and it's so nice to work with. But as tough as a boot, that welding cable is designed to lay out on uh, driveways, uh, gravel driveways, and be run over by dump trucks. And so it's really tough, but it's cheap, and it's, uh, it's rugged, and it's easy to work with. And, uh, and I suppose if it burns, it's really going to smell bad, but you ain't going to burn it. So... Uh, don't don't worry about insulation. Put the right breakers or fuses in. In fact, I, I really recommend fuses. I don't uh, I don't like breakers in airplanes because pilots like to play with them. And uh, putting a fuse block out of sight, like it is in your car, that says uh, uh, you're going to fly the airplane and do your do your electrical system analysis on the ground. Yeah. Before we so. get to fuses, I'd like to ask you another question about wires. Okay. Uh, shielded wires. Yeah. 
uh, you know, I've heard a, a couple of different couple of different suggestions. <clears throat> for example, with strobes, for example, you know, I, I have a xenon strobe system on mine, but you know, okay. most of the stuff now is becoming LED. And sure. I've seen two different manufacturers now. One of them recommended grounding the shield of the wire at both ends uh, of the run versus typically what you would do back at, at the source. What is your thought for that, if I'll make myself? Well, uh, first of all, a, a personal question. Can you hear the strobes in your radios at all? Well, I don't know yet. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, Scott, edit that question out. Uh, first of all, on, on handling shields on strobes or any other product, uh, follow the manufacturer's instructions explicitly. And the reason I say that is I have designed products where I needed, uh, I needed a four-conductor shielded. Actually, only three of the conductors had signals on them, but I had a ground return. And I designed the shield to be the ground return. And so the shield had to be connected up at both ends, but not for shielding purposes. It was connected up because it was also a power uh, return path. Now, in terms of the wire being an effective shield for noise purposes, there's an awful lot of shielded wire on products in our airplanes that doesn't need to be shielded. Uh, uh, shielding breaks an electrostatic coupling mode. In other words, if you were to take uh, one wire, well, your magneto P-leads, for example, those are the usually the noisiest wires in the airplane in terms of... of uh, fast rise time noise and so those wires are always shielded and if you were to leave them unshielded it probably wouldn't matter unless you ran your audio cables in the same bundle with the P leads and then you'd probably hear spark noises and then by adding a shield you could make those noises go away but it's a very unique kind of noise that gets radiated from one wire to another and where shielding will help break that propagation mode so you, so you would ground that shield back at the grounding bus and not where it attaches to, the, for example, the P-leads in this case. Well, I'd probably, again, follow the manufacturer's instructions, and usually you ground the shield uh, right at the magneto. Now, on P-leads on a regular mag, uh, that's a good case where I will use the shield as part of the re power return for operating the... Uh, uh, operating the magneto as well. In other words, I'll, I'll attach the shield to one side of the magneto switch, attach the center conductor to the other side of the magneto switch, then run that shielded wire out to the mag and ground it to the engine at the mag end, and then of course hook the center conductor to the to the P terminal on the on the magneto. And the reason for doing that is to uh, take advantage of that, that shield being there as a power return, but it also, uh, it avoids, it makes, it, it directly avoids grounding the thing at both ends, and, and there's a, a hazard that happens, it doesn't happen very often, but it did happen to me twice on an airport that we owned, uh, one of the mechanics was doing some work on an engine, and he had the, the, the strap loose, the, the bonding strap was loose between the crankcase and the firewall, and then he got in the airplane, tried to crank the engine, and got a lot of smoke out from under the panel. 
and the engine was trying to find the ground through the magneto p leads between the crankcase and and the ground at the at the instrument panel and so then he had to pull those wires out and replace them and uh that that's just expensive so that that's one case where you connect i always connect the shield at both ends and i talk about that and i show it in the z figures in the back of the book but as a general rule uh, shields that are there for noise purposes will be attached to at one end only and shields that have a dual purpose will be attached at both ends and the manufacturer's instructions will tell you how that's done wow so, I need a diagram on this one okay but anyway well, I, I understand what you're saying yeah but that, yeah. that particular scenario gets pretty complicated it, it does, because it's, the shield can be used for, for a variety of purposes. One of my favorite shielded wire applications is to, was, used to be to take the, the power up to the compass for the light in a magnetic compass that was mounted up on the windshield. And people would say, well, what kind of noise are you getting out of there <clears throat> that, that's uh, any kind of a problem to anybody? I say, it's not noise, it's a magnetic field. That light bulb draws a current, and if you have a current going up on a wire, it's got a magnetic field around it, and it's laying right behind the compass. But if I take the power for that light back down along the same path on this concentric shield that's wrapped around the center conductor, the magnetic field on the outside of that wire is zero. I don't care how much current you have flowing through it, it will not have any magnetic field outside that will upset the compass. Well, you're talking about a twisted wire pair then, correct? Is that what, I'm, what you're saying? Twisted pair can do the same thing for you, and that has a very strong uh, decoupling mode for magnetics. And in fact, that's what the whole twisting thing is all about. Yeah. Uh, if you have, uh, you'll notice that, uh, you ever had a Cat5 cable apart for, for your internet or uh, uh, Ethernet? on the back of your computer no I haven't done that one well, that, that's four twisted pairs in there and they have perfected that insulation technique and twisting to the extent where they can run high quality 500 megahertz signals down this very cheap wire and keep those signals from cross coupling to each other in four different signal paths and it's no shielding at all and all it did was twist them if we talk about a simple twisted wire set is there anything in specifics about the, the twist per inch, for example, that's, that's required? No. Uh, nothing, nothing real complex. No, that's, I, I make my own twisted pairs or twisted trios by just uh, stringing the, the strands out and maybe a 10-foot chunk uh, and couple them, uh, chuck them up in a drill motor and stick them in a vise at the other end and just buzz the drill motor till they're pretty tight. And then you have to let the, you have to back it off, put the drill in reverse and back it off about half of that because it's under so much tension. Yeah, very slowly so it doesn't turn into a snake. Yeah. You got you got it. It'll, it'll, it'll really pretzel itself up if you just turn it loose. Yeah, that's the way I've been doing mine too. But I was just wanted to the best specified minimum twist per inch. No, no. All right. Uh, I got more questions, Jeff, unless you need to jump in. Well, let's... Uh... Let's get a couple more of these best practice things. Uh, Bob, tell us what you like to do with labeling. You cover this in the book, but just give us a quick rundown on labeling wires. Uh, of course, I grew up 
in aviation in the certified uh, side of the house, and all of our wires came out of the out of the wire loft already stamped with numbers on the sides of them. Uh, by and large, <clears throat> most home built airplanes are not so complex that you're going to get any really good return on investment for labeling. Now, if you're if you're building a show plane and you're going to take it to Oshkosh or places like that. Uh, people will get real excited about this labeling stuff and they'll probably give you some points for it. But in terms of its benefit for uh, maintaining your airplane after it's up and running, uh, labeling is, a, is probably a very poor use of your time. Uh, if, if you'd want to label, there are some labeling products out there. There's some stuff that uh, will uh, stamp on heat shrink and then you put, put the heat shrink label on if you're if you're real fine with a real good with a fine sharpie pen, you can take a piece of heat shrink and put a number on it, and then shrink it onto your your uh, your wire. <clears throat> and uh, another thing you can do is print little uh, uh, little sticky back labels out of your printer. You can get uh, label material and print the wire numbers on that. Cut them out with a pair of scissors lay them onto the wire, use the sticky back to hold them in place, and then put clear heat shrink over it and shrink that down. That makes a, a pretty nice looking label. But if it were my airplane, I wouldn't label anything. <laughs> it's, it's not going not gonna to be that, that useful to you after the airplane's finished. Well, I don't know. I've got such a short-term memory. I use the, the printed heat shrink tubing method. Okay. Basically labeled everything, so... All I gotta do is look at it. It says my transponder wire, my ADSB wire. Yeah, sure. yeah. Well, that's that's the nice thing about experimental airplanes. It's strictly personal preference, and uh, uh, but but in terms of a, a, a good making a requirement, uh, we we had to label wires in a production airplane because we put out wiring diagrams, and all those wires are labeled on there. So a guy that walks up to an airplane for the very first time. Uh, stands a good chance of making a uh, expeditious repair on it, but when you build the thing yourself, uh, you're going to remember where most of those wires go without the labels. Except for us old guys. <laughs> All right, Bob. What about uh, bundling up your 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 wire bundles, uh, zip ties, conduits, sheaths, all that kind of stuff? What what, what are the tips for that? Well, my personal favorite is just still the plain old uh, uh, wax flat lace string. Um, I think uh, uh, you, can, you can see that stuff off eBay. It's, it's a Daycron flat lace, and I like the, the waxed version of that thing. makes the nicest uh, knots. Uh, I've got some techniques on my website that, website that show how to, how to tie some, uh, some knots. Now, one of the things I would do if I were building an airplane is uh, get all the wire bundles in uh, uh, and, and put it together with tie wraps. And then when it's all done, uh, every, every time you run a new wire in, we'll put enough tie wraps in there to hold the, the wire in place. But when it's finally finished, go back and put in string ties and snip all the tie wraps off. And uh, those those make a very neat installation that is uh, is lightweight. It'll last a lifetime of the airplane. Doesn't leave any lump sticking out on those tie wrap buckles. Also, if you cut a tie wrap off injudiciously, they can be sharp. And I've 
shed a few drops of blood on more than one airplane on a on a sharp tie rat. So, uh, but conduits. I know that uh, the AC forty three thirteen really kind of discourages from from running a lot of wires and tire and, and conduits. Yes. And Bob, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they're worried about condensation and moisture developing inside of those, uh, and, and causing problems. Yeah, and that was a really valid issue back in the days of, uh, I mean, the first electrical systems going into airplanes had rubber insulation with cotton uh, cloth woven over that, and then that was varnished. And so all of that stuff was organic, uh, fungus would attach it, uh, attack it, uh, moisture would attack it. Uh, and the stuff degraded with age, and, and putting that into an environment where it can't be open to the air and breathe was, was probably bad. Another thing about conduit is, too, is it, it makes it hard for the bundle to cool. Then if you've got a lot of uh, current-carrying conductors going down the conduit, well, that just raises the operating temperature of every wire in that conduit. Uh I, I haven't got any problems with, with conduit in our airplanes because there's just not a, uh, the, the, all of the risks for which conduit is discouraged are exceedingly minor. Uh, and the best argument for a piece of conduit is if you got to run a wire through something it's hard to get through, uh, and maybe you, you don't want to run the wire in until that area is all closed up, by all means run a conduit in there. Yeah, or and then push, push the wire in later. Or if you're worried about vibration and friction protection for the wiring, there are certain areas that would really be advantageous, like through, uh, you know, wing root ribs or something. <clears throat> yeah, uh, well, of course, anytime you run a, a, a bundle or a wire through a, a partition like that, you need to support it or, or protect it in some way. And uh, uh, it used to be every, every bundle that went through a lightning hole on a, out on the wing, we put a padded clamp in there and had a little clip that, that grabbed the edge of the lightning hole and, and carried the wire bundle through there. Uh, I sure wouldn't have any problem though with uh, uh, PEX uh, uh, plumbing tubing is exceedingly cheap. It's uh, it's rugged stuff. It's light. Uh, you could you could run a conduit out to a wing tip or out through a wing and and have a place to add wires or take wires out. It's it's really nice for maintenance in the future. Uh, long easies and very easies were notorious for being hard to get wires from the front end to the back end, and some guys would put a conduit from the firewall up to the uh, up to just uh, behind the rudder pedal and uh, have all their wires go through there. And that created some noise problems for a while until I figured out how to get those guys to ground things properly and <laughs> then we then we got the, the noises to go away because everything went from the panel back to the engine went through that conduit and uh, we had a few cases of noise to, to chase out of that all right Gary uh, what else is on your mind for best practices well, or, or other questions you wanted to get to so verbose tonight but I do have a lot of questions I want to pick Bob's brain while I got a chance <coughs> the next issue I like to talk about switching uh, or actually fuses or circuit breakers or however you want to consider it. Um, you know, I have to say that when I did my Sonics, I used a lot of the switch circuit breakers. Mm -hmm. I kind of got the impression that Bob's not particularly fond of. Well, uh, 
this kind of goes back in, in terms of my fondness of things. This, this goes back to the, the early stages of an electrical system design goals. I, I'm always looking for what I would call the elegant design, which means, first of all, the lightest weight, the lowest cost, uh, the lowest cost of maintenance. And that's another thing that people don't often really think about. They'll uh, think, well, once I've, I've bought this thing and I stick it on the panel, that's, that's the last time I spend any money on that. And it may or may not be the case. Uh, so you got issues that go out over the lifetime of the airplane with every part you select to put in the airplane. Uh, keeping the system simple, both in terms of how much hardware pieces and parts you put into it. Uh, parts count is inversely proportional to reliability. Uh, you've got 100 screws holding something together. You've got 100 times more probability of a screw coming loose than if you had only one screw holding that together. So, keeping parts... And wouldn't a switch circuit breaker eliminate a couple of uh, failure points? Except that the things are so complex inside. If you look at the inside of how one of those things is made and compare it with the little clicks on breakers, the the little miniature breakers, there's a lot of monkey motion that goes on in those things. And they were never really designed to be an aircraft kind of product, but we got them onto the Bonanzas and Barons, I forget how far back, but just before I left there in about 2005 time frame, uh, we started getting some failures of uh, some of the W31 switch breakers where smoke would come out of the breaker around the, the little actuator switch coming out of the, through the panel. And it was always on the prop de-ice breaker, which was this 30-amp thing. And there was a reason that that happened, and it wasn't a really big deal for in terms of all the rest of the breakers, but the FAA's approach to it is, if it's unsuitable for that 30-amp application, what about all of the other applications in the Bonanzas and Barons going back to day one? Well, that was about 80,000 breakers in the field. And so there was a lot of uh, renting of uh, garments and gnashing of teeth and crying out in the darkness over that one. And uh, there's a lot of unhappy Bonanza and Baron owners out there with airplanes that have had to replace breakers that weren't giving them any problems at all. But in that... There's some kind that, of weird numbers. I mean, this is just off the top of my head or something like, let's just say for a switch circuit breaker, time between mean failure or something like 10,000 switches. Now, for, for, for the average flyer, that's an awful lot of time. Except that these, are, these didn't even make the, their MTBF numbers for manufacturing reasons. These were breaking off inside, uh, breaking some strands of wire inside. All right, well, let's yeah. move on to the next aspect. If, if, if switch circuit breakers aren't so hot, I mean, certainly most of us know about the clicks on where, you know, you have the little buttons that pop out when they trip yeah. back in. What are your thoughts on something very, very simplistic, like the automotive-style blade fuses? And doing oh, it? I love them. I love them. I, I, I introduced uh, the blade fuses and the Busman fuse blocks uh, onto uh, home-built airplanes. Well, golly, I don't remember the time frame. And, and there's an interesting story behind this. I don't, you got the time? You want to hear it? I, <laughs> well, I still have plenty of bladder time left. I don't know about John, though. Well, uh, 
I was working in the, in the booth at Oshkosh, and this busman rep come, came around one day, and he plunks these fuse blocks down and says, you guys are selling electrical stuff. You ought to be selling these to go on the airplanes. Well, I'd only been working with Bill for a couple of years, and I'd been, I was deeply entrenched in certified aviation, and the little miniature clicks-on breakers at $12 a pop was the gold standard. I said, I'm looking at that fuse block, and I'm saying, oh, man, I, you know, I, 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 yeah, I don't think I want to mess with this. And I threw them in the drawer in the booth and forgot about them. And I think it was a couple of years later, Bill was getting ready to go to Sun and Fun, and he pulls the drawer out in his booth, and he's cleaning it out, and there's these fuse blocks in there. And he calls me up, and, and he says, do you want these? And I said, oh, yeah, I'll pick them up next time I get up to, to visit you. And, and I let them sit on my desk, and I get to considering them. And I says, you know, these things are used on cars. They've been on cars. There, there's millions and millions of them going to cars every year and trucks, and, and their environments are not a heck of a lot better than anything we have on an airplane. And a fuse is elegantly simple, and it's cheap, and it never fails to work like it's supposed to work. And it uses the fast-on terminal techniques, the high pressure, those low, low, vol or low area, high force, high pressure connections. And we'd already been hawking the the uh, fast-on terminals for switches and other products, I says, these fuse blocks just merge right into the philosophy of the fast-on terminals. And so I started selling them on my website, and B&C's been selling them, and, and of course, they're, they're everywhere now. So I agree with you. I've converted, too. I mean, you know, some people are concerned, well, you can't reset them and troubleshoot them if you're flying, but... You know, my goal is, is, is if a circuit blows, I'm not really so excited about trying to troubleshoot that while I'm in the air. I'd rather do that much more when I'm on the ground and can really spend some time and effort to do it. Well, exactly. And they can be mounted someplace that doesn't use that panel space. And when we're talking about our little bitty airplanes, who the heck wants to use up panel space for 10 or 15 breakers in there? Uh, that, that's just wasted space. 99.999% of all breakers that get put into airplanes go to the salvage yard. Never yeah, having had to... Has a six breakers, so you're right. I, I would need a whole separate panel just for the circuit breakers. Yeah. Traditional clicks on or, or switch, switch views. Yeah, yeah I, I've moved to the automotive, uh, you know, fuses like Bob recommends, except for my uh, flat motor. Because I tend to, if that thing binds at all, it, it will pop the breaker, and mm -hmm. uh, I can reset it. Okay. So I do have the one uh, resettable circuit breaker on my system. Okay. But if that thing were to pop and leave the flaps in some indeterminate numbers, does the airplane become difficult or dangerous to fly with the flaps fully extended? No, or it just, uh, just becomes a lot slower, and I don't like to fly slow. Well, well, I understand. So it's it's uh, it's it's more of a. Uh, well, it's it's actually more of a it's more of an issue on the ground because that's when I'm at the full extension of my flaps and I've exceeded, um, you know, or I've gotten something bound into the uh, the mechanism, where it where it will override or overheat the circuit. Does that does that happen very often? No, just about twice, and, what, and I, what, I've noticed it. 
And it would have just blown the fuse, and then we'd have to replace the fuse. Yeah. Well, yeah, certainly. And I there's one breaker that's always in a lot of my designs for that crowbar over voltage protection. Because you can get nuisance trips of that thing, depending on what kind of noises are in the system, and you want to be able to punch the thing in one time. And that's what I do on mine, Bob. It's exactly like you recommend. I have all fuses except for one circuit breaker on the crowbar. Yeah. Well, I've, I've written a number of articles. In fact, I did a forum at Oshkosh where we spent a lot of time talking about the, the, the wisdom of fiddling around with breakers or fuses in flight. And uh, people are just kind of worry about... Uh, they treat breakers in their airplanes like they treat the breakers in their house. And breakers in your house are not constant load systems. In other words, you, you, the kids throw a party some Saturday night and they plug in uh, uh, two popcorn poppers and, uh, and a hot dog heater and, and run the microwave in the kitchen and they might pop a breaker because they plugged in too much stuff. But in your airplane, those are all firmly fixed anticipated loads and you should never, you'll, you'll never get a nuisance trip in an airplane. Or you shouldn't. Uh, you, you say the flaps is one of them, and certainly the crowbar over voltage protection is another. But for the most part, if a fuse blows or a breaker opens, it's trying to tell you that there's something seriously wrong with the airplane, and you don't want to give it another chance to set you on fire in flight. So just don't mess with it. So, Bob, and, this is something that was on my mind. Uh, I think that many builders are just addicted to circuit breakers. And I've seen diagrams where they'll have the main fat wire coming from the battery to their, their power bus, and they'll say, oh, I want to protect that wire. So they'll put a 40-amp breaker there. Then they'll split off in that main bus to all their accessories, and they'll go, well, i got to protect my lights and my flat motor and this. And so they'll put more breakers in each one of those lines, and then maybe there'll be an inline fuse right before the device itself. They've got these layers <laughs> upon layers, and they just don't see that, you know, you, you are defeating. You're just you're just introducing more problems, potentially, than you're solving problems. Exactly, exactly. So how do you get people to stop doing that and break the addiction on all those breakers? Oh, you, you can't always. Uh, certainly the educational processes, uh, the forum that I run, uh, the stuff that I publish, uh, uh, weekend seminars, and, and certainly these things like these podcasts are, are just part of the educational process. But there are some people that have deeply held beliefs that you're just not going to shake them loose. Okay, so, so running through this scenario that I outlined, do you ever need a main breaker, a 40-amp breaker? Because that's possibly how much uh, might be flowing through your system if everything was cranked at the maximum. No. Or, or do you just protect the, each device downstream right before it draws out of the, bu the power bus? Well, and there was, that is the, the definition of a bus is where breakers and, and fuses are located. And each feeder that comes off of that bus needs to be protected at whatever current level it's designed to carry. Uh, you have something going out to a little bitty light on a 22 gauge, you put a 5 amp fuse in there. You got something going to the landing light and it's a 14 gauge, well, you need a 10 amp fuse and so forth. And the whole idea of putting breakers in at the bus or fuses at the bus is to keep a failure in one system from propagating over to another system. So everything like 
you have the star ground for taking care of ground issues. You've got the star bus for taking care of power distribution issues. Everything comes up to the bus and gets its own breaker. And, uh, and that's all it takes. And a breaker is there to do nothing but protect a wire. It's not to protect the gizmo on the other end. It wasn't intended to be a diagnostic tool or a, or a control switch. Or it's just there to protect that wire. I have another topic for you guys, if you're ready. Sure. Jeff, you okay? Yep, go for it. Okay. Let's talk about monitoring your electrical system, uh, amp gauges versus volt gauges. What are, you, what, are, what are your thoughts, Bob? If it were my airplane, the one device I would have in there, whether there was anything else installed or not, would be active notification of low voltage. In other words, you want a light that is dark. If the bus is above 13.5 volts, that means the alternator is running. And if the voltage gets below that level, the light flashes. It says the alternator is not running. And those are the only two things you really need to know in flight. Well, okay. Is the alternator working or not? So basically, you're more of a volt fan than an amp fan, amp fan it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, you could put a B-lead uh, ammeter in there and say, well, you know, normally this phase of flight with these kind of things running, I'm seeing 12 amps, and it's now zero. Well, that's uh, that means the alternator has crapped out. But... That's not active notification. You've got to scan the instrument to pick that up. So what about a simple voltage regulator? I mean, a voltage meter where you're watching this and you start seeing something less than what you normally expected. You know, say for a 14-volt 14, 14 circuit system, 12 volts or less, that's already telling you basically you're running off your battery, correct? Exactly. Well, actually, uh, we set our low-voltage warnings at, 12, at 13 and a half. Yeah. In other words, a battery starts delivering energy at 12 and a half and below. Yeah. And an alternator charges a battery at 13.8 and above. Yeah, but just like the old Skyhawks and all everything, you had an amp meter as well. But we, we probably don't really need it as long as we have something we can monitor our voltage system. Well, those are the voltmeters and ammeters are basically diagnostic tools. Yeah. Uh, and unless they're active notification, then they're not very useful as uh, for, for getting you out of an alternator failure bind. I've had a lot of, read a lot of dark and stormy night stories where the guy was not aware that the alternator had died until the panel started going black. Yeah, for Bob, for some of us, we're in the, we're in the modern age now. We've got these nice fancy ether screens that will, that will announce everything to us, including when it's time for our next coffee break. There you go. But many of those will give us a, a voltage warning lights when they, when they start to go below preset levels. That's active notification. Yeah. The tone in the headphones, flashing lights, beat you on the head. Say, so, hey. Head, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we don't necessarily need both of them. A voltage meter will, will basically give us the same kind of information. Exactly. And and for the most part, ammeters are diagnostic tools. Now, you know what the currents are on everything you put in the airplane. You had to do a load analysis to know whether or not your alternator would carry the loads and to know how long your battery would carry them if the alternator quits. Sure. So an ammeter doesn't tell you a darn thing. It's useful in flight. So basically, my, my flight time is half whatever my battery manufacturer says it will deliver. <laughs> well, that's another issue that... that uh, 
most airplane owners don't really take care of the battery like they take care of their tires and change their oil and, and things like that. And they just run it until it won't crank the engine anymore. And when it gets to that state, it has been useless as a backup power system for a year or whatever. Well, Jeff, surprisingly, I think I'm about out of questions. All right. Well, since we're talking batteries, Bob, um, let's talk about lithium batteries. Okay. So what's your opinion, good or bad? <laughs> well, the, the, the lithium battery is not inherently bad, but you have to be careful about what kind of lithium you're talking about and how you're going to implement it. And certainly the Boeing 787 program was a prime example of how not to implement a lithium uh, installation on an airplane. But if you go back and look at the, the, the studies that were done on that after the fact, uh, you, you see a lot of really poor decisions were made very early in the lithium consideration. In other words, from the time the 787 had a lithium battery fire, uh, they had been considering lithium for probably 10 years prior to that. And, uh, and that's one of the problems with uh, making a, a design decision on a program of that magnitude is uh, by the time you get it in the airplane, it's obsolete. And, uh, and that was a good example. Uh, there are a number of different lithium chemistries. Some of them are uh, flammable. All lithium, any battery, if you dead short the battery, if it gets an internal failure, it will deliver all of its energy in a very short period of time, and it gets hot, and it smokes, and it smells bad. But whether it catches fire and goes beyond that to become really hazardous depends on, on the chemistry. Uh, but we're still hearing things about cell phone batteries and camera batteries and so forth on airplanes. Bob, what do you but, think about lithium-iron batteries? Well, that is the chemistry of choice at the moment. Those things are pretty doggone benign. I've seen YouTube demonstrations where guys have taken uh, brand new uh, uh, lithium iron phosphate and charged them up and clamped on a device and cut it in half with a hacksaw and nothing happened. I mean, you get some sparks and so forth, a little bit of smoke, but nothing, uh, you know, nothing that would scare the socks off of you happened. And at the same time, you can see other YouTube guys out there that went out and abused the socks off of a, a lithium battery out of their model airplane, and they managed to get the thing to take off and look like a fireworks display. So, again, until you have the numbers on something and you've studied the performance limits and, and capabilities of the product as a system, uh, the rest of it's smoke and mirrors. Uh, there's a company in Wichita, it's called uh, it Mid-Continent Instruments, and uh, they put out a product called, uh, I think it's True Blue, and they've been working on lithium for airplanes now for over 10 years. And they have a, <clears throat> and they, they, they had a lithium fire on a brand spanking new airplane getting ready to go to, go to an air show, and that's when a guy put 48 volts on a, I don't know how he did this, he put 40 volts on a ground power cart to, on this airplane, I <laughs> I hear some of these stories and I'm, I'm just flabbergasted. But uh, what they ultimately wound up <clears throat> in terms of a design change on that battery is it's it's been encased in a in a enclosure that if you put 45 volts to that battery, kill all of the protection electronics inside and 
cook it externally with a ground power cart. Uh, all you get out of this one-inch tube that is vented overboard is some uh, uh, smoke and vapor and some semi-noxious gases, and the outside of the case doesn't exceed uh, 100 degrees C. You know so what the composition they, is on those, those pardon me? batteries? Pardon me? You know what the composition is on those two blue That's batteries? a lithium iron. And in fact, it's it's they make those out of, I think they're A123 cells and they're lithium iron phosphate and they're all they're all they're little cylindrical cells. They weld up arrays of hundreds of those cells to make that battery. Those cylindrical cells have turned out to be the single most reliable lithium product out there, and the most robust. And I think the Tesla cars also are using the cylindrical cells, and they, they weld up massive arrays of them. There's thousands of those, uh, I think, 14650 uh, cells in a, in a Tesla car battery. Now, to make that Thing, the, the biggest problem with lithium is it's so easy to kill them. If you over-discharge them, you discharge them below 2.8 volts or something per cell, uh, you've killed it. You, on a lead-acid battery, you can run that thing clear down to zero and let it set for half a day and come out and charge it back up again, and you may have killed a few percent of its service life. But you do that to a lithium battery, and you get below a certain level, and that battery is gone. Uh, the battery also doesn't like being overcharged. It's, it's pretty easy to degrade their performance by overcharging. So this is why the true blue guys have as much cost in electronics in their battery as they do in battery. And the same thing is true of the EarthX, I believe. Yep. Uh, that's another Pardon me? Bob, this is something that uh, you know I've observed. All the all the manufacturers that are that are offering uh, lithium aircraft batteries, they all say they have advanced circuitry to protect the battery. But it seems that we're really good collectively at defeating that advanced circuitry and killing lithium batteries anyway. Why is that? Well, because their circuitry isn't as advanced as you'd like to believe. Say the advanced is not quantitative. There's, there's, there's no, no numbers on that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, new and improved and advanced and the latest new design. Uh, what I like to see is the engineering system integrator's data sheet. says if I do this to the battery, you know, what do I have to do in terms of maintaining the bus voltage? If the bus voltage gets too high, what's it going to do to the battery? If I over-discharge it, what's it going to do to the battery? If I dead short it, what's it going to do? And EarthX has enough electronics in there that ostent I haven't done any of the active testing. I'd love to send one of their batteries up to Crane, Indiana, to the Naval uh, uh, Battery Testing Lab and let those guys beat on it. And uh, uh, But that's uh, uh, EarthX has come as close to being the equivalent of a type certificated or, or TSO battery as anybody I know. Now, I'd love yeah, to text them. Some of the others apart. Anecdotally, um, I can think of a few people that have bought EarthX batteries and uh, have managed to kill them. So I'm just kind of wondering if maybe we're not quite ready for prime time, or you think maybe we're, we're there? Well, I, I would love to get my hands on batteries that have been killed uh, and also get their narrative, in other words, uh, as to what they think might have might have uh, been a root cause. In other words, did some unusual event happen? Well, 
Bob, I had a uh, ballistic lithium battery that I left my uh, master on and killed it. You're welcome yeah. to have it. It's a book weight. It's a paperweight right now. Well, and, and it probably has no electronics in it. I think AeroVolts, they just take some, uh, oh, I forget what that cell is. It's a 24-something or other, but they just take stacks of those cells and weld them together and put them in a plastic case. There is no protection on those batteries. Yeah, this is early on. These are This is an early uh, lithium okay. battery for the airplanes. Did you have any, uh, oh, the ballistics, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was they're, they're, I guess they're common with, like, the Harley guys and the jet skiers. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a risk with those. If you've got a very finely tuned electrical system and you monitor it well and, and don't walk away and leave the master switch on, you can probably get some good service life out of them. It worked great for me for a year until I did that, and it became paper. Yeah, yeah. I can speak to the EarthX batteries a little bit. I, I've got some of my next new project, and I, I know that... Mine had somehow drained down. I won't tell you why, but anyway, they did do it. The original charger that I bought was supposed to have taken care of that in order was to power through that drain down. And yeah. since the point, EarthX came back out and says, well, we, we actually need a, a little bit more of a turbo booster on the battery charger to reset the system. So when I bought a second battery charger, which was, had much more capability, it was able to revive those batteries. And okay. far they're working very well. So, well, doggone it! Uh, I wish I'd. Have, I wish you and I had talked first. That, in fact, there's a YouTube thing on there now by EarthX. It tells you how to reset one of their batteries that you've over discharged. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, is when you get below a certain voltage on the electronics in there, it does completely remove all of the connection features between the battery and the outside terminal. So if you go uh, you try to put up uh, some automatic battery chargers that you hook onto them. If they don't see any voltage there, the charger won't come alive. Yeah. And so you temporarily connect another 12-volt battery across it, and that will excite the charger into coming alive, and then it'll go ahead. And that also resets the the uh, electronics inside the EarthX, and then you can take the, the extra battery off, and it'll go ahead and do its thing. Yeah, but on the positive side, now I actually have two charges that can charge each battery independently. So, I'm okay. <laughs> and when so, you do it again, you'll have a third charger, and then you'll have a spare. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a strong proponent of the little battery minders. In fact, I've been installing them to some of my farmer friends around here. They have trucks like like a green truck that's only used during harvest time, and it'll sit in the shed for uh, you know 11 months out of the year. And it seems like every year they're throwing a new battery in it when it's time to go harvest. They say, well, let me put this little $30 gizmo on there, and you plug it in, and that thing's going to be ready to go the next harvest. And that battery ought to last you 10 years or 20 years. And uh, a lead-acid battery will discharge itself uh, over a period of time. In fact, a wet battery was usually good for about 90 days. And if it sets in a discharge state, well, it'll kill itself. And uh, so I've, I've got battery reminders on everything here. I always keep everything, my motorcycles, everything plugged into battery. Sure. And those batteries ought to, in other words, if you, if you really think about a, a battery service life is based on charge-discharge cycles. Or how many watt seconds can I pull out, push back in, pull it out, push it back in. 
there's so many watt seconds of cycles that you can get out of that chemistry before it starts to degrade and becomes useless. Well, if you're when you crank an engine, that usually only takes about one or two, three percent of the battery's total energy to get the engine started. Well, once that happens, if the alternator picks up all of the system loads, then ideally, all the time you're operating your airplane, uh, the only time the, the battery has to do anything is start the engine, and you're taking out a couple of percent, and you immediately charge it back up again. And that battery ought to last for years and years and years. But unfortunately, on airplanes with uh, permanent magnet alternators, you got to taxi out with uh, battery only, and you're taxiing back in battery only. So your your cycles are deeper, and you're putting the airplane away partially discharged because you taxied in battery only. Putting a battery minder on it is the best way to keep those batteries working for you. All but right. Well, this has definitely been one of our longer episodes. Uh, I want to start to kind of closing things out what other what other questions do you want to tee up before we, we wrap it up oh i think i've abused you guys enough but i certainly appreciate bob's employees clarified and and affirmed a lot of my suspicions i would recommend we have bob back for uh part two well we can you can do this as often as you like guys i'm i'm, I'm retired I, <laughs> so uh yeah anytime you want to get together and have a uh, chew about a variety of things or any one thing will give me heart yeah that sounds good there, there's a few other things on my list that um that i'd like to get to so we'll do that we'll plan sometime soon to have you back and we'll do electrical systems part two and okay. we'll get some of these other other questions teed up very good all right well bob thanks a lot and uh i definitely look forward to doing this again and uh thanks for everything you're doing for the community and and sharing your experience continuing to stay at it uh, even now after decades of, of doing this. Um, I think the impact you've had has been uh, dramatic. I appreciate well, I'm, it. I'm, I'm hoping to generate another first here. I think uh, just about every future product to come out of BNC uh, of my design is going to have software in it. We've got a guy doing uh, jelly bean uh, microprocessors for all our over-voltage and under-voltage monitoring, and I'm working on a software-based voltage regulator and uh, a whole a whole list of little gizmos that all have software in them. So it's fun. <laughs> all right. Well, good deal. But before we close this out completely, um, I just uh, I want to go over the uh, the Dynon contest that we had a few episodes ago. So episode 16, we had Dave Weber from Dynon Avionics, and we did our autopilot show. And he was gracious to offer up uh, a promotion that Dynon was going to do. If you signed up for their newsletter, you'd be entered into the raffle or the, the drawing, really, for a couple of $200 Dynon gift cards. Well, they've done that. They've collected all those entries and selected the winners. So we're pleased to announce that Lawrence Ayers, who is uh, Sonic's 829 plants holder, uh, he was one of the, the two, and Earl Kirkpatrick was the second one. So uh, congratulations to both you guys, and uh, make sure to, to go uh, do a little window shopping over at Dynon and, and use that uh, that gift card for something cool. Excellent. Gary, um, I, I want to say that 
that maybe we were excluded from this contest. So I was kind of hoping to get that, but I don't think we actually got considered. Yeah, we, we, we talked uh, about it before. I figured we were automatically discounted. And then, and just, <laughs> That's it. I'm going to Grand Rapids. <laughs> but we need to get Dave back on. There's a whole bunch of things we want to talk about with him. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll harass him when we get him back on here. Unfortunately, Dino's got a lot of my money here lately, so. Well, that's because they make some cool stuff, so they got a lot of mine, too. I might inject here also, uh, I've had some conversations with uh, Dynon Engineers. It was one of the few companies where I could call uh, with a question and get a hold of somebody who actually designed the equipment and get good engineering answers from them. They've been one of the most forthcoming and, uh, and helpful manufacturers for the home builders that I've, uh, I've met in a long time. Yeah, I well, agree good information as well yeah we we uh we kind of talked about their philosophy as a company when we did the uh the autopilot show and uh, they really kind of buy into the the you know a company of aviation enthusiasts builders you know four other builders and i think we all really like that about them it shows (laughs) all right guys well thanks a lot i know we went a bit long but uh it was a pleasure as always so for everyone out there um once again, you can find us on the web at sonicsflight.com. You can catch us in iTunes and Google Play and all those normal things. And, of course, we'll put the, uh, the, the show notes up with, uh, with links to some of those things. And uh, with that, Bob, we look forward to talking to you again real soon. So thanks time, guys. guys. Talk to you later. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Flight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.